0: this morning to the book of Romans chapter 12. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Romans together. Come now, last time together, uh, uh, into Romans chapter 12 formally. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of the men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. They'll put one into your hands, mark to our passage we're studying today. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord. To you this morning. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul writes and he says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we are many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts and exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and never cease to marvel on a daily basis and on a weekly basis of the privilege to be able to hold the Bible in our hands, to have this revelation from you. And to hold this living word that you take by your Holy Spirit off of the printed page and make a part of our lives. You know what we need to hear in a way that even we don't understand. And certainly no other human being understands. And so we surrender, even before we study this passage, to its truths, Lord. And we do so with great joy and a sense of privilege for that as well. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that upon entering into Romans uh, chapter 12, that we're entering into the second of the two major divisions of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11 are deeply theological, as Paul has laid out and described for us from every conceivable angle, this thing called the gospel, and how it is that God has provided to us Uh, salvation, the forgiveness of sins, uh, the privilege of living a holy life, the confidence of one day uh, being in the glory of of heaven itself, and all provided to us because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and us putting our trust in that, uh, that gospel and that salvation that Jesus has provided to make it our own. As Paul then begins in uh, chapter 12, he begins to examine uh, very much the practical side uh, of our salvation and uh, the life that we are to live practically on a daily basis as a response to all that God has done for us and that we've learned about in the first 11 chapters of uh, the book of Romans. And what he describes in chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through to the end, he describes himself as being the Christianity and the only Christianity that is a spiritual response and a reasonable response to all that Christ has done uh, for us. And the last time we saw that Paul began his description of this reasonable response with three exhortations from verses 1 and 2, that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord, that we're not to be conformed to this world. Uh, Second, and then third, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And as you would think about that progression in terms of Paul as he writes this, by the Spirit of God, that's exactly where you would expect him to begin. And our relationship with God, beginning uh, the practical side of our Christian life or response to this Gospel with a full surrender to the Lordship of Jesus within our lives and a commitment to living uh, a holy life. But let's just pretend we don't know what he says in verse 3, even though we do because we've just read it. Uh, Let's pretend that we sit in that church in the the city of Rome 2,000 years ago, and this letter is now being read uh, immediately to them. And here we are, we have no idea what is the second thing that he is going to address uh, in terms of priority, in terms of living uh, a a life that is a spiritual and a reasonable response to all that Christ has done for us. What would Paul make the next focus in terms of, of all of this? And I think it's very fascinating where he goes next. In verses 9 through 16, which we'll look at in coming weeks, Paul addresses the Christian's relationship on an individual basis with his fellow Christian. And then in verses 17 to 21, he addresses what is to mark our personal relationships uh, with the world, the unsaved world around us. And I would have guessed that that's exactly where Paul would have gone uh, next in his progression, but he didn't. And instead, in verses 3 through 8, he begins by addressing what is to be the proper relationship of every single Christian uh, to this thing called the body of Christ, as he describes it there in verse 5. And the body of Christ, that terminology that is used in the Bible, it refers to every single Christian who lives in the entire world. Every single Christian is under the headship. Jesus is the head of the church. We are the body of Christ. Every single Christian is under the headship of Jesus, His lordship, of His leading, of His his prompting. And thus, we have a relationship with one another as Christians in being united together in Christ's lordship within, within our lives. Paul uses this imagery repeatedly. In his uh, letters, as he, uh, in the same context as he uses it here, and that is the context of spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, he said, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and he himself, speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Another word that is used in the New Testament to describe the unity of every Christian in the world is this word church, the church. And Paul unites this terminology of the body of Christ and the church. For instance, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. The Greek word that is used for church uh, in the New Testament is the word uh, ekklesia, And it means called out ones, and it refers to the fact that every single Christian has been called out of the kingdom of darkness and called into the kingdom of God's glorious light by virtue of trusting uh, in, in Jesus. We've been made a part of the kingdom of God. And the word church as it's used in the New Testament, it often refers uh, to, it does refer to the church as a whole, universal in, in the world, but it also is used to refer to the local church as well, a church like Calvary Chapel, uh, Modesto, because every single church is a part of this larger thing uh, called the church, the uh, ecclesia. And the gist of what Paul is communicating here in verses 3 through 8 to the church in Rome and to us as well is that every single Christian has been given a spiritual gift by God and also been given a place of spiritual service or Christian service associated with that gift and that we are to be faithful to use that gift and to fulfill that calling upon our lives and that we're to do so for the health, for the edification, for the strengthening uh, of the body of Christ, of the church, and whether that toward the worldwide church or toward the local church, and we are to do this because it is our reasonable service in the light of what Christ has first done for us. Now, there are some Christians whose gifting and whose calling involves an edifying and a strengthening of the church on an international level. I think that Franklin Graham and I think that Samaritan's Purse are an example of that. They minister to the world, but they minister to the church, every part of the church, all around the world. And then there are other Christians who, uh, uh, whose gifts and callings are directed toward the edifying and the strengthening of the church on kind of a city-wide uh, uh, level through kind of Christian ministry that's, that's focused at that, that larger arena. But most Christians in the early church, and it's, and it's the same thing that's true even today, Most of us are called to strengthen and to edify the body of Christ in the context of a local church like this one. And and because this is what Paul is addressing supremely in writing to the church uh, at Rome, and I think it is the main focus of his instruction here, I'm going to make that um, my focus in our study this morning. And I think that Paul starts here with this instruction That every single Christian, that's you and me, in the local church, every single one of us, are to have a deep commitment into whatever church we belong to, a deep involvement in whatever church we belong to, a concern for its strength, a concern for its health, a concern for its edification. And one of the reasons that every single Christian is to have that attitude and concern for the local body is, as we look at the church worldwide, uh, and as we look at the church in individual communities, what in the world would happen if there were no healthy churches to belong to? Uh, I mean, as Christians, we wouldn't have a place to go to for needed teaching and instruction in the Christian life, no place to go to to worship uh, corporately, to pray together corporately, uh, to be able to enjoy fellowship and relationship, uh, relationships that we need so desperately as we stand as pilgrims and strangers in this world that we live in. No place that we would come, could come to where we know that the people that gather in that place, they understand my life. They understand what I face as a stranger and a pilgrim uh, in this world. And just to stop and imagine try, trying to live this Christian life alone, not possessing any of those things, no prayer meetings corporately, no worship and teaching and fellowship in the way that we enjoy in the, the local church. No deep relationships with other Christians that we're able to then learn from and, and grow together uh, with. And then concerning the world, without the church being what it's supposed to be. I mean, the world would then cease to be aware of Christianity. It would virtually disappear as, as a, a something to be seen and to be encountered. There would be no sense in the world that there's another kingdom operating in this world other than the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of man there would be no means by which they could come to know uh, the gospel in the way uh, with the kind of power and the kind of frequency that god intends and i think that one of the things that paul wants to drive home to us here this morning is the local church is a priceless thing. And it is very, very important that every Christian play our God-given part in its strengthening and in its health and in its spiritual prosperity. I'll never forget one night I was teaching. Uh, the, had been invited by a friend of mine, Pastor Joe Foch at C.C. Philly, and to teach the midweek Bible study uh, following a conference that had gone on uh, on the East Coast. And as I got up to begin to teach in opening in prayer, for some reason my heart was just uh, turned toward the privilege of worship, the privilege of a a church to come to, uh, to learn the Word of God and to worship uh, the Lord together in that kind of a way. It's the kind of thing that all pastors go through. You you come up, and you, you know, the prayers are not planned. The prayers aren't scripted. It's, Lord, what do you want to say? What do you want me to pray? What, do you, what blessing do you want to, to, uh, me to ask for related to this meeting? And, uh, and so I prayed. And then after that Bible study, a man came up to me to thank me for that opening prayer. And as it turned out, the reason that it resonated with him is he was a missionary uh, in the country of the Ukraine. And he he said, uh, sometimes in the United States we lose sight of the privilege of a local church. I forget whether he said 10 or 20, but uh, we'll, we'll use the conservative number of 10. He said, There are 10 churches or 10 cities in the Ukraine, one million or more, that do not have one single Protestant evangelical church in them. And I think that sometimes it's uh, good for us to be reminded of that. Here we live as Christians in the United States, and we've got this rich Christian heritage. And we've got so many churches to choose from within a, a local community that we can sometimes stop and, and forget about how precious a local church is and how important uh, that, it, uh, that it is. You notice that Paul in verse 3, he writes with apostolic thor- authority in terms of what he's going to tell us here, and he wants us to know that, that what he declares here isn't a suggestion. It isn't a thought that he's had, but that he uh, writes this as uh, an apostle when he says, uh, for I say through the grace given to me. And he's referring to God's call upon his life as an apostle. Notice as well in verse 3, he declares, to everyone who is among you. In other words, what he writes here isn't, doesn't have an application to some select few, uh, some 20 percent within any local body, but it has an application to every single Christian in the world, and every single individual member of every single individual church that exists in the world. Notice first of all that Paul tells us, and he, and he makes it known in verse 3 and, as, and in verse 6 as well, he informs us that every single one of us as Christians has been given at least one spiritual gift by God. You notice that he states in verse 6, "...having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us." And when he talks about gifts there, he uses a, a familiar word, Greek word that's used in the New Testament, and it is the word charisma. Charisma. And it's the word that Paul uses to refer to spiritual gifts in all of his writings. Everyone has been given at least one spiritual gift or charisma from God, every Christian. Other verses speak to this same truth in the same context of spiritual gifts. Paul wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, "...but the manifestation of the Spirit," speaking of spiritual gifts is given to each one for the profit of all 1 Corinthians 12:11 uh, but the one and same spirit works all these things distribu- distributing to each one individually uh, as he wills 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 6 there are diversities of activities but it is the same god who works in all and to just stop and think about how amazing it is that as a Christian, the moment that we were born again, that God bestowed upon us individually, personally, something that He chose from His storehouse among His spiritual gifts, and that He gave it to us as Christians. And as I studied this passage this week, I mean, it just hit me once again. I've been a Christian for a long time now, and I operate in the realm of God's gift in my life, or in, in His calling, in, in the gifting and the calling of God upon uh, everyone else around me. This is something that's normal. It's something that I'm accustomed to in my Christian life. And I, and I just had to just stop and pull back, and, and to regain the awe of what can become so familiar to us. And to think about, imagine God investing something that the world could never produce, could never give to a single one of us, and yet He chooses to give at least one of these gifts to every one of us by virtue of becoming a Christian. And invests in our life in this way, a supernatural investment, a priceless investment in our lives. And the list of these various gifts that God gives to each and every Christian, at least one of which, uh, uh, of the gifts, this list are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, and then uh, here, as they're described in, uh, in, in, uh, first, uh, in Romans here, chapter 12, uh, verses 6 through 8. And God gives these gifts in order that we might be supernaturally fruitful and successful in the ministry or the Christian service that He has also called us to, and, and, and the, in order that we might be an edifying influence within the church. And He's going to talk more about that in, in verses 4 and 5. Uh, Paul elaborates on this elsewhere, and I think it's very, very helpful in this regard, that the gifts are given not to showboat them. They're not given to be hoarded. They're not given to be put in a napkin and hidden one day for when the day the Lord returns. Jesus had a strong rebuke for that kind of treatment or handling of the gifts. The gifts are given in order that they, would not, that they would make us supernaturally effective in edifying and strengthening the body of Christ, and specifically the local church. Paul wrote of it, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. And then here it is, for the profit of all. Notice in verse 3 that Paul declares as God has dealt to uh, each, uh, each one a measure of faith. And what Paul is telling us here is that not only does God give each of us at least one spiritual gift, but then He, he then gives us the faith to recognize that gift within our life, and then He gives us the faith to begin to step out uh, in using that gift and discovering that we do have it, it 's one of the great marvels of being a young Christian is to discover that I have a spiritual gift and to begin to seek God for what is that gift. And then to begin to learn about that and to start taking steps of faith in operating within that gift. And then to discover that He is blessing that and make that discovery in our Christian life. It is so uh, exciting, and it's one of the great feelings in the Christian life uh, when we discover God has gifted me with this gift, and He's called me to exercise it in this way, and then as we do so, we discover uh, all of it to be true. Now, these gifts and, and the faith to operate in them are completely supernatural. This is 100% supernatural and it's important for us to understand this as Christians. What Paul is talking about here, what he's talking about when he talks about spiritual gifts, he's talking about more than doing my job on a weekly basis as unto the Lord, or running my business as unto the Lord, or raising my children in the ways of the Lord. Every single Christian is uh, called to do that, independent of our, our gifting. This is gifting that is specifically given by God to strengthen the body of Christ and to advance the kingdom of God. I think it's also very important to realize that Paul is not referring here to natural gifts. That we're born with is a result of our physical birth. And it is true that every single talent and ability that we have as people, that all of those talents and all of those abilities are God-given, and that it is also true that when we become a Christian, God takes those natural talents and those abilities and He takes them under His headship and He gives them an effectiveness that they would never otherwise uh, have apart from His involvement uh, in those things. But here He's talking about something beyond that, something that we come to possess from God, not as a result of our physical birth, but as a result of our spiritual birth. And this gift has been chosen by God individually for each of us. Now, notice in verses 4 and 5 that Paul likens the body of Christ to a human body. And he does so in emphasizing how vital it is that each of us use our spiritual gifts within our area of Christian service, within the church. And Paul uses the same imagery always when he's speaking about spiritual gifts. He does it in his letter to the church at Corinth and his letter to the church at, at Ephesus. He likens the body of Christ to a human body. Listen, when you've got a good illustration, you stay with it. And sometimes you can look at a preacher and you can say, boy, he keeps using the same illustration to make that point. But if it's the best way to make that point, you stick with it until you discover a better one. And Paul never could discover a better way of describing uh, the body of Christ than to liken it to a human body. And one of the reasons I think that he does that is it's something everyone is familiar with. We're all familiar with our, uh, with the human body. We happen to live with it. We understand the function of the hand, the function of the eye, the function of the liver, the function of the digestive system, what to do to that ges- digestive system, what not to do to that digestive system to our legs and to our feet. We understand how the whole body functions. We're not grappling if he said, you know, he said, the kingdom of God is like the Pythagorean theorem. Well, we'd all be lost except for five of us within the room. So he likens it to something we're all familiar uh, with. And in likening the body of Christ to a human body, he's communicating a couple of very important things supremely. Number one, that every part of the body is needed. And just as every part of the body is necessary for the overall health uh, of the whole in a physical body, it is also necessary for every Christian to be uh, exercising their gift within the church for it to be healthy and strong as well. And it's Paul's way of saying that no one is to sit on the sidelines concerning this, convinced that my calling, my gifting, my area of service is insignificant. He rebukes that by way of the illustration. The second thing that he communicates here in in using this imagery of the body is that the whole body is necessary for the health and even the survival of any individual part of that body, that we need one another. And elsewhere when he gets into more depth of it, he'll write later to the church at Corinth and he'll use the illustration of the hand and the eye and the foot being of virtually no use, disconnected from a body, uh, or, or not availing itself of of uh, the wholeness uh, uh, of the body and the gifting that is found uh, uh, within a body. And the idea is that no individual member of the body of Christ, doesn't matter how great uh, their gifting might be or their position within the church, no one can be even remotely successful in their gifting and in their calling without functioning cooperatively with the rest of the body of Christ. And what he does in this imagery is to now rebuke the person at the other end of the spectrum, to rebuke any pride that a person might be tempted uh, to fall into in their Christian service as a result of having a prominent kind of gift, or a prominent area of, of service within uh, the local church, a more visible place of service within the church. We are absolutely dependent upon one another no matter what gift we have. Uh, there, no gift and no part of the body of, uh, uh, body of Christ is self-sufficient any more than it's true related to a human body. Now, Paul in verse 3, as he talks about this, he finds it necessary uh, to uh, issue a warning concerning pride related uh, to all of this. You notice in verse 3 once again, for I say to you, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly as God has uh, dealt to each one a measure of faith. Uh, Phillips' translation is is helpful once again, and here's how Phillips puts it. He said, As your spiritual teacher, I give this piece of advice to each of you. Do not cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance. And that captures exactly what Paul is declaring and warning against uh, here. And you notice that Paul declares this to each and every one of us. Why would he uh, find it necessary to declare this warning to every single Christian, except that there is in some part, whether large or small, within every single one of us, to fall prey, a tendency to pride related to Christian service and and concerning uh, spiritual gifting. And it's very, very subtle how how it uh, can occur. And so the warning is important. I mean, maybe you heard about the church who gave their pastor a medal for being so humble, and then they took it away the first Sunday he wore it. Uh, This uh, (laughs) pride is a subtle, subtle thing that can Uh, come upon us. But this tendency to consider my gift and my ministry to be the most important of all, and then that develops a very poor relationship with the rest of the body of Christ. And we're all prone to gift exaltation, to where we consider our gift more important than every other gift simply by virtue of the fact that we possess the gift. And it's something that we need to be aware of. All pride, uh, including in the realm of spiritual gifts, it is so destructive. And so this reminder is uh, needed that the gifts aren't for self-promotion. They aren't for uh, glorification of of ourselves. They're given for the health and the good uh, of the body of Christ as a whole. And the idea that, and, and, and this is something that was completely lost upon uh, at the Church of, of Corinth related to spiritual, spiritual gifts, and that is that no one should be considered spiritual solely on the basis of the gift that they may possess. Uh, that is the grace of God, uh, but rather to be considered spiritually mature on the basis of how we exercise those gifts and the exercising of them with humility and to exercise them with other-centeredness, a concern for others uh, being supreme. And I I think it's also good to be reminded that in a human body, I mean the one cell that lives uh, solely for itself without any concern for the health of the rest of the body, is known as a cancer cell. And what is true of the human body and these rogue cells that uh, live independent and at the expense of, uh, of the rest of the human body is also true concerning pride in a local church. It will ultimately uh, destroy it if it is left unchecked. It is a spiritual uh, cancer in the body of Christ, the importance, and Paul had probably seen a fair amount of this, the importance of humility and the exercise of spiritual gifts. Paul then gives us some examples of, of the gifts and how they're to be used there in verses 6 through 8. Uh, this isn't Paul's main interest in, 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 uh, concerning uh, the gifts. Uh, uh, he, he basically lays these out <clears throat> as just kind of an example of what it is that, that he is uh, talking uh, uh, about here. Uh, he'll go into greater depth when he writes the, church, uh, the letter of, of 1 Corinthians and uh, concerning e- each of, uh, of the gifts. And, uh, but here he, he, he gives us a little, he primes the pump a little bit concerning spiritual gifts. One gift a person may have is the gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy is very much in the New Testament what it was in the Old Testament. And a prophet was someone who would speak for God. There was oftentimes an element of foretelling uh, related to that, speaking of a future event before it occurred. But most often a prophecy was something that was given uh, by God through a prophet to an existing local situation. But God uses that same gift of prophecy through people in in the church today uh, in order to do uh, both uh, within that church. And he says those who have this gift are to exercise it in proportion to our faith. In other words, it's whenever a prophecy of, is given, it is always to be consistent with our faith. It is to be consistent with what uh, the Bible teaches concerning our Christian faith. He mentions the gift of ministry. Uh, deaconia, in the Greek, we get our word deacon from it. And uh, and here you have prophecy, which uh, speaks of a kind of declaring truth, and a person who is called and given a gift of ministry is someone who then uh, has supremely as a focus of their life the practicing of truth and and physically serving other people in a local church. Our deacons, among many, many others within uh, this fellowship, Uh, are operating in this gift. If you wanted to see the gift of ministry in action, those of you who were at the Thanksgiving dinner, you saw it in all of those servants that were serving. And the pleasure that they do this over and over and over again at different events within the church, special events within the church. They have this gift of ministry. He talks about the gift of teaching, and this is God simply giving someone a gift to read and explain and apply the Word of God, to make the Word of God clear. And then the gift of exhortation in verse 8, and the person with the gift of exhortation is the person who has a special focus upon applying the Word of God to our, our lives. And here is a person who isn't content with us merely knowing the Word of God, which is so often the focus uh, of the teacher, but now to stir us up, to now live this Christian life, to live uh, the Word of God. And it's such an important gift. I don't know how popular... The gift of exhortation is today. Everyone wants to be told how wonderful they are, but it is an important gift. I have a great appreciation uh, for it. Uh, because this gift keeps us from falling asleep spiritually. And it can be exercised from a pulpit. A pastor can have a gift of teaching and a gift of exhortation uh, in delivering the Word of God. Exhortation and the gift of exhortation can occur in counseling sessions or in one-on-one relationships and fellowship. But it is a gift that keeps us from falling asleep spiritually. It keeps us moving forward In our Christian uh, life. He talks about the gift of giving in verse 8. And here you have something that's special. Every Christian is called to give financially to God's work through tithes and offerings. It's not talking about uh, that. Here you have Christians who are gifted by God to give, to materially bless uh, other people. And And here are people who have an extremely mature attitude related to, to money. They understand that it's a tool. They understand uh, that uh, people have needs related to money, that the kingdom of God advances so often on, on the resources that are needed in order for that to occur. And they love to give toward uh, those kinds of things. And so they become aware of a, a material need in someone's life, and their first step is not to preach to the person, but to begin, to go aside and seek the Lord and ask the Lord, Lord, do you want me to be a part of this financially, this need in this person's Life. And it's a very important gift in the body of Christ. It has always operated very powerfully. In the 35 years of Calvary Chapel Modesto, you can sometimes look at a person and say, What in the world do they do around here? And very often they operate out of this gift. It operates very, very quietly. Uh, but very powerfully uh, within, uh, within the church and very important place in strengthening and, and uh, producing health within the, bo- uh, within the church. And I think it's important to realize, too, that a person doesn't need to be rich to possess this gift. So often we can think, well, that's a rich person. As soon as I get $2 million, uh, you know, I mean, 20 years ago we'd say $1 million, but what's a million dollars today? nothing. Just kidding. So, but we think if somebody has this great amounts of disposable income, then that's who God uses. But it it isn't true. Someone with this gift can have uh, modest means, but it's more than they need in their life. And they're in contact with an entirely different uh, group of people in the daily of their life than maybe another person is. And God exercises that gift Uh, through them. There's the gift of leading, as he mentions in in verse 8 as well. And there's some people that are just called uh, by God uh, to lead in the body of Christ, and it's a spiritual gift. You say, how uh, will a a person know whether they have the gift of leading? Well, I think there's two characteristics that, that mark such a person. Number one, they lead. And then number two, when they turn around, they discover that there are people that are following them, that there are people whose hearts God has touched and, uh, and, and made them recognize that what God is calling this leader to do and the direction that he's leading them into, that he also wants these people to be involved in that as well. And so, a leader will lead, and, uh, and people will recognize the gift and the calling, and they will follow. And God, is use, He uses leaders. He used them all the way through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament uh, as well. And uh, without leaders, uh, a, a church is absolutely going to either stagnate, or it's going to be yanked in every conceivable direction. Uh, and, and uh, wander aimlessly and the importance of, of leadership, that gift of leading. It's to be done with diligence. In other words, if you're going to lead and you have this gift, then you must be faithful to continue in it. Uh, and, uh, and no matter how hard the path gets on, on the path uh, of leading. In other words, no leader is allowed to lead a group of people someplace and then upon leading them someplace, to abandon them as soon as things get hard in that place. It's to be done with uh, diligence, and uh, because when things get hard, that's precisely the time that they need leadership. We don't need leadership when everything is easy, but in, in the hard moments, and, 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 and never more important than that, and then there's the gift of mercy. This is a supernatural gift of encouragement. And sometimes, people, so you know, that I, there's one brother I think of in my mind here, and uh, he's one of, the most, uh, one of the greatest gifts of mercy and, and cheerfulness I've, I've ever seen. And, and, uh, and I would look at him and think, well, th- he's been this way all of his life. This is just a natural kind of talent that is now being used for God. And, and yet it, it wasn't so. And God can bring this gift of mercy into our lives. And this, how much need for encouragement is there in life and in the body of Christ? And the tendency if they have a gift of mercy is what is that compared to uh, teaching? What is that in comparison uh, to uh, you know prophecy? But a word of encouragement directed by the Holy Spirit to, uh, uh, to people at uh, those strategic moments when they need it most in life, and a person operates that, in that in a local body over a long period of time, they will have a comparable uh, impact upon a body as any other, as any other gift will be within, within that body. And it's to be exercised, Paul says, with cheerfulness. It'd be terrible to have a gift of encouragement, and it'd be like, uh, you know, you were gruffer. You cheered people on, you know, with, with, and begrudged extending the, the mercy to them. And so, uh, the mercy, but extended with cheerfulness. Now we close in verse uh, six with Paul's final exhortation concerning spiritual gifts, and it is those four words, and they're worth uh, circling. And they are the four words, let us use them. And the idea with absolute clarity, unmistakable clarity, Paul declares spiritual gifts are to be used. We are to learn uh, what spiritual gift we have, and then we are to use that gift all the days of our lives to edify and to strengthen the church and expand uh, the kingdom of God. And when he says, let us use them, this speaks of the possibility of a Christian being given a spiritual gift and a place of Christian service associated with that gift and then failing to use it. In other words, living a serviceless Christian life. But how in the world can a person be a Christian that is Christ-like without serving Jesus declared concerning himself famously, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus taught in the parable of the talents in which he declared that the only way to one day stand before him in a way that is both joyful for him And joyful for us is to hear the words from him ultimately, from his very lips, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And no Christian who does not ultimately hear those words from Jesus' mouth can ever consider their Christian life to have been successful at all. Saved, yes, by the grace of God, but uh, they will not have the abundant entry that God desires each of us to have into heaven. And the question is, is how can I hear one day, well done, thou good and faithful servant, except that I live my life now as a good and faithful servant? exercising the gift in the realm of service that God has called me to in the body of Christ and in the local church. And I say this this morning, and it's one of the great things about heading through the Bible, and it's just the next passage that we're coming to, where people can't accuse me of aiming uh, at them in, in any way. And I don't mention any of this in an attempt to kind of correct some kind of serviceless condition that we have here at Calvary Chapel Modesto. This is a very, very healthy church in that regard. I mean, I know I speak for myself, I speak for the pastors, I speak for this body. We are humbled by how many people are operating in their spiritual gifts and in their calling that allows all of this to happen so well in every age group, in every kind of environment, and in, in, in ministry as it, as it goes on. It's tremendous. And I just say, thank you for your faithfulness to your gift and to your calling. But I mention it in order to notice and to avoid what I think is a very, very dangerous trend that is occurring massively within the culture, and it it has crept very substantially into the body of, of, of Christ as a whole, and into the thinking of Christians as a whole, and it's done so steadily over the last 20 years. And that is to look at the local church with a sense of entitlement that I am owed everything that it offers Everything that it is uh, without ever contributing something to this thing that I draw from uh, and, uh, and such vitality and strength and encouragement and nourishment from uh, on a, a weekly basis. This sense of entitlement concerning the local church. And then there is the consumer mentality that is so awful, where everybody in the world is trying to get the most that they can get uh, for uh, the least and in, in, in give the least in order uh, to do so. Well, it's one thing for the world to operate that way, it's another thing when that becomes the attitude of individual Christians within a, a, a local church. And I begin to look now for a church. Where, how, what church can I find where I can draw the most from it and yet give the least back to it? And, and that becomes an easy attitude to settle into. I'll never forget a pastor friend of mine who was at the back door of the church following a service and a man came up to him and uh, introduced himself and said, I just came uh, to check out what you had to offer. And uh, my pastor friend, that'll make you snap. And my pastor friend said to him, what do you have to offer? I mean, it is exactly the wrong attitude. And the first thing, what do you, I came to check out what you have to offer, and not on the first visit, but then to abide in there, to stay in there for months and years within a local church. That is an attitude toward the local church that comes from the world and being conformed to the world. It, it, it is that, and it is the second attitude. What do you have to offer that my friend said that is the attitude toward the local church that is what Paul is talking about precisely here? And I think that Paul, his great point here is that there is no uh, uh, the, uh, giftless Christian, and thus there should be no serviceless Christian, and only a life of Christian service, Paul is saying, is a worthy response, a a spiritual response to what God has first done for us in His Son, is detailed in in chapters uh, 1 through 11. And if you don't think that what Paul declares in these verses needs to be said today, Let me ask you, how many Christians do you know who consider today even church attendance to be optional? That's how low a view they have of the local church, much less how many consider Christian service to be optional. And this is, all of this is very, very far away from the Christianity that is described in the Bible. Now, this is a very good word and a very, very important word to my heart, to your heart, and I am so thankful that the Holy Spirit had this as the next item on Paul's list in talking about this worthy response, this spiritual, reasonable response to all that Christ has done for us. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of this passage, and um, you're about the only one who will talk to us in this way and speak with that kind of directness and that kind of clarity. And we thank you, Lord, that you do so. We thank you for this very, very high, high view of the local church and the responsibility of every Christian to the health of that local church, the encouragement that it is to each and every one of us, Lord, in our service to you here and Lord, and the body of Christ as a whole. We thank you for the privilege of Christian service. We thank you for the meaning and the fulfillment and the satisfaction that it brings into our lives that we can't find anywhere else in life. And we thank you for this privilege in Jesus' name. Amen.